people who pray. Now that I got your attention, let me explain. When we pray, our plans are frequently disrupted. When we pray, asking for God to change things in our world and in the people around us, we soon discover that God begins by changing us. When we pray, telling God what it is on our minds, we find that He tells us what is on His minds. Has our praying as of late been similar to what we just saw? Don't bother me, Lord. I'm praying. Has our praying been more of an exercise in religious activity, wanting it not to disturb us too much? Have we been so concerned with what it is we have to say that we are really not listening to what it is He wants to say? Listen, when we pray, I mean fervently pray, God will disturb us, bother us, and move us out of our comfort zone. It is prayer that changes us. It's not like the boy who was sent to his room because he was behaving badly. And a short time later, he came out and he said to his mother, I've been thinking about what I did, and so I prayed. Well, that's great, the mom replied. If you ask God to help you behave, he will help you. Oh, I didn't ask him to help me behave, replied the boy. I asked him to help you put up with me. (laughs) That's not what God wants from us. But isn't that how it is? Lord, can you better align your will to mine? Prayer has been likened to throwing out a boat hook from the boat and catching hold of the shore and pulling. Do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to God's will. Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. And perhaps we aren't hearing God from God because we really aren't willing to put into practice what we've heard. And God longs to break into our praying to bother us, disturb us, and open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, our mouth to speak what it is that we ought to put into practice. See, praying obediently is what God is really after. Now, while it's not my common practice to encourage you to pick up a copy of a past sermon, last week's sermon ties so tightly into this week's sermon, I want to mention to you how helpful it would be for you to listen to that in light of this morning's message, especially if you weren't here last week. Because really, this is part two of the subject on judging. And at first pass... You might wonder, how in the world do these verses speak to the subject of judging others? Well, I direct you to Jesus' last word on judging others. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. I want you to look there with me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. It's the last verse uh, of the section that Bob read. Verse 12 of Matthew 7. Follow along. It says, So in everything, do to others before they do unto you. No, that's not what it says. Though I'm afraid that's the version we prefer over the one Jesus gave us. 
Jimmy Hoffer said, I do, to un- I do unto others what they do unto me, only worse. That's not what Jesus is saying. What does Jesus say? So in everything, verse 12, so in everything, not some things, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now here is perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Even not non-church goers are familiar with this verse. And in some cases may not even know that it's found in the Bible. It's commonly known as what? The golden rule. Named that sometime, I think, in the 16th century. Some have even put a twist on the golden rule to jokingly say, he who has the gold makes the rules. Well, in other words, money talks, but that goes against and violates Jesus' very intention here in verse 12. Many adopt Jesus' teaching here as a statement on human ethics, but it's more than that. The problem is that most of us are so used to this very remarkable verse, verse 12, that we don't even notice just what an earth-shaking command it contains. While it is true that the world would indeed be a better, a much better place if everyone practiced the golden rule, the promise and the power of this verse is what goes before it. When is the last time, honestly now, when is the last time you thought of verse 12, the familiar golden rule verse and the context of the verses preceding it? Does it relate to what comes before it? Well, notice the very first word of verse 12. It is the word so. Therefore is actually a stronger translation, but they both mean the same thing. The so at the beginning there, verse 12, the therefore at the beginning there suggests that we can't live the golden rule without experiencing the truth of verses 7 through 11. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. But we also, in its context, need to reach even further back to what we saw last week on learning to live without judging others. Let me remind you of last week. Maybe you want to forget last week, but I'm going to remind you of it. If we can dispense of judging others, then we are in a better position to help them. It should have been clear from last week that drive-by judging is not helpful. To drive up to the window, place your order of pearls of wisdom, and then drive off helps no one. You wouldn't want others to do that to you. Why do we insist on doing that to others. Verse 12. Last week we spent the majority of our time on what not to do when it comes to helping others. Don't judge without first doing some what? Self-examination. Removing that plank of spiritual blindness. Don't judge as a superior saint, but rather we are to enter into others' lives as a fellow struggler. Don't judge. Why? Because we have limited information. And don't judge without a commitment to understanding the other person. Because otherwise that word, our word spoken, nourishes no one. It's rather indigestible as pearls are to pigs. It isn't food, folks. No matter what you call it, it isn't food. It only provokes anger and it gets a strong reaction. Verse 6, we saw that last week. So if there's a wrong 
a sin in someone else's life, can we not offer any help? Are we to simply sit by and do nothing? Is there a right way to help someone? And if so, what is that right way? Well, that brings us to part two on the subject of learning to live without judging others. There is a better way. So what is Jesus' last word on judging others? How can we be of help rather than hindrance to another's struggles? Well, at least three ways as we see here in this passage. First of all, Jesus' last word on judging others. This is how we can be of help rather than hindrance. First of all, it is by inviting God into the situation. By inviting God into the situation. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the promise is the door will be opened. Notice here, in those two verses, the number of times Jesus invites us to pray. Ask, seek, knock, he says in verse 7. Then he comes back to it again in verse 8. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, the door will be open. Do you suppose he wants us to enjoy the Father's help a little bit more than we do? A little boy was spending his Saturday morning playing in his sandbox. He had with him his box of cars and trucks, his plastic pail, and a shiny red plastic shovel. In the process of creating all these roads and tunnels in the soft sand, he discovered a large rock in the middle of the sandbox. The boy dug around the rock. He managed to dislodge it from the dirt. And with no little bit of struggle, he pushed and he nudged the rock across the sandbox by using his feet. When the boy got to the edge of the sandbox, however, he found that he couldn't roll it up and over the side of the sandbox. But determined, the little boy shoved and pushed and pried. But every time he thought he made some progress, the rock tipped and then fell back into the sandbox. The little boy grunted. He he struggled. He pushed. He shoved. But his only reward was to have that rock roll back and smash his little fingers. Finally, he burst into tears of frustration. And all this time, the boy's father watched from his living room window to see the drama unfold. And at the moment the tears fell, a large shadow fell across the boy in the sandbox. It was the boy's father. And gently but firmly, the father said, Son, why didn't you use all the strength that you had available? And defeated, the boy sobbed back. But I did, Daddy, I did. I used all the strength that I had. No, son, corrected the father kindly. You didn't use all the strength you had. You didn't ask me. And with that, the father reached down. He picked up the rock and he removed it from the sandbox. Let me ask you, what rocks have you been trying to move yourself? Why do we attempt to make progress in our own strength? Why do we insist on struggling when God invites us to ask, seek, and knock? Three commands, symmetrically repeated, and in the present tense, 
to emphasize the persistence and the sincerity required. Furthermore, each command here, ask, seek, and knock, builds on the one before. First, ask. Then, seek, which could be understood as acting while you're asking. And then finally, knock. That is to be persistent. Keep on knocking. Keep on pursuing what it is that you believe God wants you to do. When Nicole, my seven-year-old, has something on her mind and needs to get dad's permission for something, she will find me. (laughs) She will find me. If I'm nearby, she'll ask. If I'm somewhere else in the house, but she can't immediately see me, she will seek me out. If she discovers that I'm not even there, I'm next door in my office behind the closed door, she will come and knock in her own way. (laughs) Whether you find God immediately and sense His nearness, He doesn't seem as close to you right now. Seek him out. Knock if you must. Do whatever is necessary to invite God into the situation. And do you see what this has to do with the context of learning to live without judging others? Do you see why Jesus introduced this matter of prayer right here? Prayer addresses what stands in the way of our loving well. And what stands in the way? In a word, it is us. We stand in the way of love. Jesus means to get us out of the way and turn to him so we can live out love rather than live out judgment. Now, have you noticed what happens when you pray before you go on and just judge? What happens? What happens when we pray for others rather than pass judgment on them? I mean, how difficult is it really to have a critical spirit while praying for the well-being of that person? Do you find you can do both? No, I can't. And while we ask, seek, and knock on behalf of others, watch out. It may disrupt and push you to see them from a different perspective. Just recently I experienced this. If you ever wonder, that, you know, does, does the pastor get his own messages I do, okay? Just recently I experienced this. I was really bugged by someone, and they were really getting to me. And in case you're wondering, it isn't anyone in this room, no one belonging to this church family. I mean, who's buggable here, right? (laughs) Anyway, stay on track. My thoughts for this person were not very loving. And you know what happened? It happened while in prayer meeting as I was prompted to pray for this person, not by name, but as I prayed for this person, my heart began to melt in compassion. My heart began to ache for this person, and while I still had some very hard things to say to this individual, my spirit was now right, and I could approach this very sticky situation in a totally different way. I invited God into the situation. It is only after we are asking, seeking, knocking, then we can go to that person and ask, how can we be of best help? What is Jesus' last word on judging others? Invite him into the situation. Slow down. Invite him in. You might be surprised what he does. You might want to do this or this or this. 
Secondly, secondly, what does Jesus say here? Secondly, remember how our Heavenly Father treats us. This is Jesus' last word on judging others. Remember how our Heavenly Father treats us. When we look to Him rather than to other things for help, what does He promise? Well, follow along with me as to what Jesus says next year about living out the golden rule and being of help to others. Verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The story is told of a young boy who wanted $100 very badly. And he prayed for a long time to get $100, but nothing happens. Undaunted by the lack of response, he wrote a letter to God presenting his request once again. And when the postal authorities received the letter addressed to God USA, not knowing what else to do, they decided to deliver it to the president. The president was interested in the letter enough to instruct his secretary to send the little boy $5. He thought this amount might be enough to encourage such a young boy. And indeed, the little boy was delighted with the $5 bill. He sat down immediately to write a thank you note now to God. This too was forwarded to the president. The note said, Dear God, thank you very much for sending the money. However, I noticed that for some reason, you sent it through Washington, D.C., and those guys deducted $95 in taxes. (laughs) Now, perhaps you have wondered if God isn't treating you the same way. I asked for this, Lord. Why in the world did it do this? Perhaps your view of God is he seems to be a taker, not a giver. See, our image of God is is very much at stake here. A lot of people see God as this cranky old man who is forever out of sorts. If we picture God as a reluctant giver who only gives after we nag him or after we manipulate him or, or we see him as some malicious tyrant who enjoys playing tricks on us, or if we even see him as this indulgent grandfather who can't ever say no, then that will affect how we approach him, or even if we care to come to him at all. Our text says, the God of the kingdom, our heavenly Father, graciously and willingly gives us good gifts and answer to our prayers. The question is, do we believe that? And just as no parent would deceive a child asking for bread or fish by giving him a similar-looking but inedible stone or dangerous snake, our heavenly Father who is for us will not withhold his blessings. And not only does a parent want to give, but they want to give good gifts. Now to speak of fathers as evil here is not suggesting that they are all as bad as they could be or utterly evil in all that they do, but that their innate innate nature is self-centeredness and that taints all that they do. Yet imperfect Sinful parents can give good gifts to their children. The arguments from the lesser to the greater. How much more then will the heavenly Father who is pure and holy and perfect, completely loving and righteous, give good gifts to those who ask Him? Let's ponder this for a moment. God our Father 
invites us to come to him for good things with the promise that he will give them good gifts. We need to linger here. The God who is infinitely powerful and can do all that he pleases. The God who is infinitely righteous so that he only does what is right. The God who is infinitely good so that everything he does is perfectly good. The God who is infinitely wise, infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely merciful, promises that when we ask him for good things, he will give them. How wonderful is that? It's been said, one may be a truly industrious man and yet be poor in temporal things, but one cannot be a truly praying man and yet be poor in spiritual things. These spiritual gifts are available to all of God's children who persistently ask, seek, and knock. And the question that haunts me is, why then do we give such little inclination to pray? Why are we given ever to prayerlessness? The greatest invitation in the world is extended to us and we turn to other things? What a tragedy. May the Lord awaken us with a deeper sense of urgency and longing to pray in 2012. Let's remember how our Heavenly Father treats us. I mean, here's the key to everything. Here's the principle to take hold of, of the value to embrace. That rather than trying to manage my life so as to worry about everyone else, I can begin to trust that God is managing my life sufficiently to enable me to help others. Rather than trying to manage my life so as to worry about everyone else, I begin to trust that God is managing my life sufficiently to enable me to help others. That's the rub right there. We have a relationship with God as our Father who loves us and answers our prayer, and He gives us good things when we ask Him. We invite Him into our situation. We then remember His fatherly provision for us. Now what? What's the result of all this praying? What is the result of of trusting in his provision for us? The answer is quite simply, living out the golden rule. But all this shows is that the golden rule depends on what went before. There's one last word Jesus has for us when it comes to not judging others, but instead being of help to them. Follow along again as I read verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Loved ones, what Jesus says here is revolutionary. If you think that if I treat others the way I would like to be treated, then I will get treated that way too, you've missed the point. Jesus never guarantees that. It isn't treat others so that we get good treatment in return. That is no more than narcissism. That is a self-preoccupation which is our basic problem through life. And we're not to do anything out of self-preservation. You see, to refrain from hurting others simply because I don't want them to hurt me in return is still all about self. And it doesn't go high enough. What Jesus calls to us to here is more than living by some kind of maxim that says honesty pays. We've got to go higher than that. The kind of love Jesus speaks to us here is far greater than to love in order to ensure our own welfare. 
We are to do to others as we would want them to do to us, not because we expect the same in return, but because Jesus demands it. Demands it of all his kingdom citizens. And that's why Jesus' teaching is so revolutionary. We are to treat others, not how we expect them to treat us, nor how they do treat us, or even how we think they should treat us, but we treat them as determined by how we want them to treat us. Is a love that serves, whether it receives such love in return or not. And you ask, how in the world can anyone love this way? Verses 7 through 11. How can anyone ever carry out the golden rule? Verses 7 through 11. Prayer is the key to everything. It's the highest expression of our dependence on God. Jesus here has been talking about a righteousness that exhibits itself in God-like behavior wherever we go. Who can live like that? I can't, you can't. Therefore, we need to ask God to give us what we need in order to accomplish what he asks. See, if you're one of God's children, then you can trust in him enough to meet your every need to satisfy your heart in every situation, good or bad. And once that is established, you can persist in doing to others what you would want them to do to you, even if they don't reciprocate. That's impossible. Yes, it is. In our own power and strength, yes, it is. What Jesus just said about prayer enables us to go somewhere with that power. Here's the last word on judging others. Far from demanding the impossible, Jesus provides for us here the means for doing the impossible. Far from demanding the impossible, Jesus provides for us here the means for doing the impossible. His love for us and our trusting in him is the source of power for living the golden rule. We miss that. We miss the far-reaching and lasting impact of verse 12. We cannot live the golden rule without experiencing the truth of verses 7 through 11. It is only as we deepen our relationship with God, through communion with Him, there can be a revelation, revolutionary change in how we treat others. And asking, seeking, knocking, God will provide us the good gifts. That's what He says. And so if we really want to see people change, we have to be willing to come alongside and participate with them. Standing at a distance and lobbing the grenades is not helpful. It's only as we come alongside of others, treating their struggle as our struggle, walking together as fellow struggles, strugglers, that we are a tremendous help. You see, the only way we can do that is rather than trying to manage my life so as to worry about everyone else, I begin to trust that God is managing my life sufficiently to enable me to help others. See, to not judge is only half the equation. True love is not only seen in what we refrain from doing, but what we are to do. We are to be people who persist in prayer and in loving others. What does all this mean? What does it mean for us as a congregation? It means that a congregation that loves well will be a congregation that prays fervently. It means that we will be a vibrant and dependent church community because we are so deeply enamored with our Heavenly Father. It means that God the Father is our delight, God the Father is our sufficiency, and God the Father overflows in love as we interact with one another. We cannot do verse 12 without verse 7 through 11. 
A young boy went to the local store with his mom. The shop owner, a kindly man, passed the little boy a large jar of candy and invited the little boy to help himself to a handful. Uncharacteristically, the boy held back. Go ahead, son, the mom said. Help yourself to a handful. The little boy said no. So the shop owner reached in the jar with his big hand and he pulled out a handful of candy for the boy and the boy's face lit up. Went outside. The boy's mom asked her son why he had suddenly become so shy and wouldn't reach in and take a handful of candy. And the boy said, because his hand is much bigger than mine. (laughs) I love that. How is it possible to learn to live without judging others and instead practice the golden rule? How is it possible to reach out in love when that love isn't reciprocated? How is it possible to be countercultural in our relationships and be revolutionary and radical in how we treat others? How is it possible? Because his hand is much bigger than mine. If I only give my hand, I only get what my hand can do. When it's God's big hand, wow. Can you imagine what he can do? Let's pray. Lord, a lot to chew off this morning. Help us to digest this and to understand it and to apply it to our lives. And as we go from here, God, that we would go desiring to be a blessing to others, realizing that we cannot do that in our own power and strength, but only as you give us the good gifts that allow us, that enable us to be of help to others. May we be a dependent church on you. Persist in prayer and persist in love. And by your grace, we can do it in Jesus' name. Amen.